Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Nigel Topping to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Nigel is the UK's high-level climate action champion, appointed by the UK Prime Minister in January 2020. The role of the high-level champion is to strengthen collaboration and drive action from businesses, investors, organisations, cities and regions on climate change and coordinate this work with governments and parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Thank you very much, Nigel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great. It's really good to be with you, Fergal. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your current work focus, uh, your title, I think, is the UN High Level Climate Action Champion. What does that involve as well? Okay. Um, yeah, it's a long title. So um, let me start with my background. Uh, first, first of all, given that COP26 is going to be in Glasgow, it might be relevant that I was born in Glasgow a long time ago, um, but so <laughs> proud of that and looking forward to going back to Glasgow. Um, and um, uh, I, uh, I spent the first part of my life in Scotland um, and the first part of my career in, uh, in the manufacturing industry. So I've, I've, um, I've always been interested in, in, in real people making real things, and I'm, uh, but I've also been really interested in wild places having been br- brought up in the north of Scotland and spent quite a lot of time as a young man on mountaineering expeditions in the Arctic and in Patagonia um, and coming face-to-face with climate change. So I've got this sort of twin interest of um, wild places and industry, you know, the, how we do real things. So I've become really, uh, over the years, committed to the sort of grand project of how do we harness the power of business um, to tackle the world's greatest problems, in particular climate change. And so... Um, uh, after working in industry for some time, I started working in that area with the Carbon Disclosure Project and then with We Mean Business. Um, and for the last year and a half now, I've had this, this role. Um, and and it, it, the fancy title hides an interesting role. So the, the, the High Level Champions role was created in Paris at the, as part of the Paris Agreement in recognition of the fact that national governments can't do this on their own, that this is a whole of society transformative project. We need businesses, investors, cities states and regions, universities, the whole of civil society. So that, so, so, so that all I have, and I do it with my good friend Gonzalo Munoz from Chile, who are um, the presidents of COP25. So each, each COP, the presidency, gets to appoint somebody. Um, so we work with um, that, 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 all those stakeholders around the world, and, the, and the, the job is to drive ambition and action on climate change um, uh, in support of the Paris Agreement, to, so that countries are better able to implement the Paris Agreement. Oh, a lot, you've got a lot on your plate. Um, so we're in the middle of uh, still this kind of unfolding crisis, the COVID uh, situation, um, and indeed, as you 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 know, you know very well, for, for 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 many years, decades, we've had these growing, interlocking environmental crises, um, vast, and we could talk about it for days. But I'm just wondering, is there one or two things that are particularly on your mind that worry you that you feel right now are particularly critical? Um, I think, I mean, I think the things, I mean, overall, 
I think we've seen a huge, we're, in a, we're a sort of inflection moment in history where the world's finally woken up and has decided that we've got to get to net zero. We haven't got all the plans in place yet, but I'm actually feeling quite positive about that. There's a lot more to do, so not 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 naive about that, but we have good momentum. The, the issues which I'm more concerned about are some of the things that are very much in front of us, like the practicalities of meeting in Glasgow. Make, making sure that um, all the people who need to be there um, can be there representing all the different countries and all the different voices. I'm really encouraged by the recent UK government commitments to provide vaccines to everybody who should be there but may not be able to get vaccines otherwise. So hopefully we'll see more details of that soon. And the, the other thing that I'm particularly focused on is how we make sure that the most disadvantaged countries and groups not only have a voice, but see momentum um, in a direction which is helpful to them, given that there's this fundamental injustice at the heart of the climate crisis, that those who did the least to cause it are the ones most subject to the increasing risks from uh, severe climate change. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you, your background, as you said uh, before, uh, we mean business and so forth, and clearly a key actors in, in, in this uh, scenario. Uh, there seems to be considerable momentum. There have been some legal changes, challenges, changes uh, recently, uh, activist investors uh, take, speaking out and so forth. Um, how do you assess the, the current moment uh, with respect to, 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 to the business side of things? Um, what inspires you here? Well, I, I'm about to draw inspiration from lots of places. I mean, this, this is fundamentally a systems change challenge, right? There's no silver bullets. It's not like just change this policy or just win this court case or just um, uh, change this investment decision. It's all of the above. So I, 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 I draw inspiration from the fact that we are seeing real move on every single lever you can think of in terms of driving change. So you mentioned the recent court court case. That's a pretty big deal, right, that a group of environmentalists and young people take on Shell and win or take on Germany and win. But as you say, that then some of the um, investment changes, but both the, the specifics that you're probably referring to of you know, uh, activist investors ousting um, uh, directors at Exxon who are clearly not taking the climate crisis seriously enough as a business issue, um, but also the fact that we now have 70, you know, we launched the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero with Mark Carney a couple of months ago. We have $70 trillion of asset owners, asset managers and banks committed to net zero. They haven't all got plans yet, but they're going to have to deliver them in, in, in the coming months. But also the technology, right? I mean, we're an unbelievably innovative species, right? We can do anything when we put our mind to it. So everyone knows about the massive cost reductions in solar and wind, but we're seeing the same on batteries so we're now seeing the exponential increase in electric vehicle sales um, um and, and 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 we're starting to get a glimpse of what's coming in terms of things like green hydrogen and zero carbon steel and zero carbon cement that will take a bit longer because we haven't spent enough time investing on them yet but there's a lot of capital moving in that direction but i also take huge huge faith from the way that the mayors of the world are organizing themselves um you know they're really on the front line of, of delivery of a lot of things and, and of the way the next generation is moving, is continuing to be activists, but also moving into leadership positions in, in, in government and in industry. So I think every, every lever you look at, there's really exciting evidence of progress, um, but it all has to be scaled up by orders of magnitude. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How, how are, what needs to happen over the coming months for COP26 to be a success? And I'm wondering whether you could, uh, not to get way ahead of ourselves here, but what a successful COP26 would look like. Well, of course, it's not far away now. So we, we, we need to be ambitious and realistic at the same time. It's gotten quite difficult to beat. I, I always sort of break it down into three or four areas. So the, the first thing just to remember is that the, the COP or the Conference of the Parties is not a global renegotiation of the climate deal. That was done in Paris, which created the structures. Um, but it is re- the reason it's really important is it's really the first test of those structures. So, so job number one in Glasgow is to finish the Glasgow the, the Paris rule book. Some some of the details about the implementation of Paris to do with uh, transparency and data. It's quite it's, it's geeky, but it's important because over 190 countries need need to need to agree on a consensus basis. Um, so, so and, I, and I don't underestimate that it, it, because that's a test of multilateralism. Like we weren't able to agree all those things in Madrid um, 18 months ago. So that's the first test: is finishing off the detailed um, negotiations. The, the, the second test is: can we keep 1.5 degrees in sight? Like, can all of the commitments and plans add up to enough of a change that there's still a chance of getting to the top end of the Paris Agreement's ambition of 1.5? I mean, there, there the progress is quite encouraging. Right? We've got over 70% of the world economy um, covered by net zero uh, commitments at the headline level. Again, not enough detail yet. And we're, and we're making really good progress in the real economy as well. I think the, the, the third issue is to make real progress on the issue of adaptation and resilience, which for many countries is more important. Like those countries with very low emissions, but already feeling the effects in terms of increased coastal surges and cyclones and droughts and wildfires. Um, and there we need to see more of a sense of solidarity than we've seen recently and that we've seen um, in terms of the response to COVID, frankly. And, and then finally, it's about mobilisation finance. Um, and and I, would, I would distinguish the public and the private public. There's a very clear commitment that hasn't been met yet to mobilise 100 billion and growing of, um, of finance, I suppose, public finance and private finance leveraged by that public finance. Um, and that hasn't been delivered yet, so that's that's a matter of trust, as Alok Sharma, the incoming president of the COP, says. But then also we need to um, pay much more attention to how we use that to leverage in the trillions of private finance that's needed to meet the, the, the zero carbon investment needs of the whole world, but particularly the global south. So right. I think we need to see movement on all four of those if we can have a successful COP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carbon offset markets, um, why do they matter, Nigel? Well, they matter for a sort of positive reason and a negative reason. Right? So let me deal with the negative. Um, the, 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 the negative reason that carbon offsets matter is that, is that there's a risk that they're used as a sticking plaster um, um, uh, to pretend progress where there isn't really progress. So the com- companies or countries make claims that they're basically paying someone else to solve the problem for them whilst not changing their underlying business model. Uh, um, so that's that's that's... That's one of the, I mean, there are other concerns about offsets, like are they um, are they lasting, are they double counted, etc. But the, but the fundamental one is are, are they an excuse for not taking real action? Um, are they in an indulgence, so to speak? Um, but, but the positive of them is that we do need to spend money, um, uh, particularly on nature-based solutions, to actually drive the and pay people for the drawing down of carbon into soils and into um, forest growth and forest restoration. Um, so both, we both practically need to suck that carbon out of the air, and it's a mechanism for transferring 
money from rich countries and companies to those communities who are stewards of the soil and the forests who are not being paid for that. So it can tilt the economics um, in the favour of um, regenerative practices. So that, that, that's why they're quite contentious, right? It's because they, they can be misused, but there is a really important role for them in terms of um, accelerating what we call nature-based solutions and in terms of um, paying uh, communities for uh, those um, those environmental and ecological services. Yes, absolutely. What about, um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the danger um, uh, of, of, I guess, that uh, carbon uh, offsetting is prioritised over carbon reduction. What, what, what's in, in, have you guys in mind to ensure that it's the carbon reduction that is prioritised? And we've got to talk about this question of greenwashing. Uh, you know, is there and has there been, what, what's, what's happening with respect to uh, being clear about what companies are really genuinely doing? I mean, we, we, we run this campaign called the Race to Zero, and we're very clear about that, is that you know, anybody who's in the Race to Zero has to make a commitment to get to zero eventually. That's across all scopes, so what we call scope one, two, and three, so that includes the full value chain if you're a business. Um, and that um, they can't use offsets to do that instead of reducing the emissions in the value chain. So they've got to reduce, um, and they can, use, they can um, buy offsets in addition to that if they like. In some industries, when you get to the end of that um that journey there may be some emissions that we don't know how to remove we don't have the technology like cows burping is a classic one so there may be a need for some residual emissions to be offset but fundamentally we don't allow offsets to be used instead of reducing emissions in the value chain in line with the science and the key things there are that people should publish their targets and have them verified by somebody as being science-based and then and then commit to transparently publishing um the progress they're making against the short-term targets, which are in line with the overall goal of halving emissions by 2030. Yes, yes. Um, can you talk about, because uh, uh, race to zero, as, as you've uh, clearly pointed out, is different from net zero. Um, do you have a sense of the level of commitment? Because I know you've had some momentum on the race to zero compared to, uh, certainly there's been tremendous momentum on on this on net zero, but as you say, there are questions there to to address in terms of where the, you know, the movement is really happening. But uh, can you maybe just talk a little bit about race to zero compared to uh, net zero? Are, are companies doing both of them? Um, and and uh, you, do you have a sense of the scale of action on, on, on a compare, comparative basis? I mean, I mean race to zero is a, is a campaign for, for rigorous net zero commitments and action, right? So everybody in Race to Zero has committed to net zero, but not everyone who's, who says they commit to net zero is in the Race to Zero. So, so, so there is greenwashing yeah. out there. There are people saying they're committed to net zero who are not doing enough and would not qualify for the Race to Zero. So a lot of what we're trying to do is drive a wedge between you know, doing things properly and robustly in line with the science and the Paris Agreement and pretending um, to do things ro- ro- robustly. Um, and transparent, that's why transparency is so important because no one, no one can hide um, ultimately. So anyone who is not in the race to zero but is claiming to be net zero um, really encourage them to look at um, doing things in a more robust way. In terms of progress, um, as, of, as we speak, there are over 4,500 organisations in the race to zero. That's about 3,000 businesses. We've got, and it's really exciting that we've got huge growth from small and medium-sized enterprises each, each of those tends not to have very big emissions, but we know that they're hugely important for innovation, for job creation, and for emissions reduction. Over 700 cities, um, uh, over 600 universities, and as I mentioned, um, a smaller number, but a huge amount of finance, over 160 um, financial institutions 
who between them are managing over seventy trillion dollars um, of, of global capital. So, so we've got we've got some good momentum, and it's growing. It's growing really fast. I expect that to be significantly higher by the time we get to Glasgow, and to keep growing. I mean, what we're really trying to do is, is get net zero embedded in the global economy as a norm, which everybody has to adhere to, because then it makes it easier for everybody to de-risk it for everybody. It makes it easier. You know, if your customers and your suppliers and your investors are all expecting something from you, it makes it much easier for you to do it than if you're having to stick your neck out on your own. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. Now, uh, just before we were talking about the, the carbon offsets, what what exactly is uh, the voluntary carbon markets? Why, why are they called voluntary carbon markets? Um, well, because there are, to distinguish between compliance carbon markets. So let's take, if you take the EU, there's, a, there's an emissions trading scheme so that um, certain industries, so power generation, steel, cement, which create a lot of emissions, are required to um, pay for um, uh, every tonne of carbon dioxide that they emit. So that's called a compliance market. And you can buy those rights, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a company that reduces my emissions faster, I can then sell the remaining allowances. So that creates what we call a compliance market. It's a cap and trade system where the, um, the country, or you know, and many countries have these, um, but the big, biggest one is the EU, although China's launching one now. Set a cap, a certain a maximum number of allowances, and then um, you, you have to buy enough to cover your emissions. And if you um, if you can reduce your emissions faster, you can sell sell, sell surplus ones. A voluntary a voluntary offsets are exactly what they say. Where there's no compliance requirement. Let's say I'm a food company, um, and I know that there are um, I, I want to do more than the law requires because I want to um, support the countries where my suppliers are or because I want to be able to make claims about um, some of my brands, then you can buy um, voluntary offsets, which are not subject to compliance. And that's one of the, that's one of the challenges historically has been making sure that the quality of those offsets is, is robust enough so that they're not, um, they're, they're not flaky. But that, that's the basic difference is some people are required by law to pay yeah. for allowances that we call those compliance markets and, and, and all the others are voluntary. Right. And are the voluntary carbon markets then more what you might call self-regulatory? Um, yes, because they're not they're not they're not legally required. But what has happened over the years has been there's a lot there's been a lot of focus on improving the standards so that um, companies buying the offsets and people listening to the claims being made about the validity of those offsets can 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 trust them. Um, so it's so there are standards that exist, but they've they've evolved over time. They're not created by governments; they're created by market players. In many cases, they've been created by NGOs working on um, on the standards. Right, right. And should they be regulated more? I mean, do you worry about that? Because I mean, as you say, the carbon offsets. Uh, I mean, there's been various reports saying that there isn't enough land to basically meet companies' requirements uh, if they, you know, go down this road. Um, and particularly emphasizing more the offsetting than the uh, than the than the, the, re- the reduction. Uh, wh- why wouldn't these markets? I mean, when when you say voluntary, it, I guess in some people's mind they just think, well, we've been here before. Self regulation doesn't always work, does it? No, I mean, you, you know, there's no way you can rely on self-regulation to solve climate change. It's fundamentally, you know, we, the fundamental problem is that the, 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 the pollution has not been subject to a tax. Now, what economic, as economics, economists say, 
that there's a there's a there's a negative externality that is not priced into economy. So companies damaging the climate are not charged for it. So they just get away with it for free historically. So of course, so but that doesn't mean that you can't have that there, there might not be a role for um, voluntary initiatives as long as they're above and beyond compliance and not and no one thinks that they're going to be a replacement for regulation. So absolutely there's no way in which voluntary car markets um, is the solution. But if they're credible and in addition to good regulation, then they sh- I don't see any reason to discourage them. But absolutely, there should be no sense that um, you know, good voluntary initiatives are a replacement for de- reg- regulating carbon out of the economy. Yeah, that's it. I guess there's just some pre- fairly eye-opening statistics about the growth of that market, uh, which who knows that what the future holds, but it, it seems to be getting a lot of attention. Yeah, but I think, but I think rightly, but I mean, Look, if you put it really simply, why wouldn't you want some of the world's biggest emitters to self-tax and transfer funds to communities who are caring for soil and forests around the world, right? I mean, you might not want to do that if you think that risks people not regulating, right? But, but, but if, if, you, if you make it clear that that's not acceptable, then why would you not want that to happen, I think it's an entirely desirable thing, but I don't think it absolutely needs to be clear that it's not a substitute for um, the policies that price pollution and drive the transformation at the heart of the economy. Right, right, very interesting. Now you talked about adaptation and resilience. Um, adaptation sometimes feels like the the uh, uh, younger, uh, less getting uh, 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 getting get less attention from than, than mitigation. But there, there's obviously quite a bit of momentum there as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the adaptation issues? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've already caused over one degree of. Um, global warming and remember that's an average over the whole globe so it's it's like um i think it's roughly double that on average over land and even more in high latitudes like in the in the the arctic so and 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 you have to be completely you know completely cut off from the news to not see that we are getting more and more severe hurricanes more forest fires more droughts more floods um, uh, and so that's already happening, um, and we know it's going to get worse because there's a lot of momentum in the climate system. So, um, however well we do at mitigation, there's going to be a requirement to increase the resilience of communities ar- around the world. I mean, that is around the world. You know, we have increasing flood events um, in the UK, and need to spend more money on flood defences. But it's particularly a case in the uh, in often the poorest communities have done the least so we, we, we we've launched a race to resilience as you say it's like the younger sibling of the race to zero it's it's, it's less developed um and we tend to think that that the it's helpful to really focus on the three communities that are most subject to climate risk those are the, those who live on, on in sort of river and coastal regions um smallholder farmers and the urban poor particularly some as well it's those communities are the ones most exposed to the impact and have the, the biggest impact when, when, when extreme climate events happen. Yes. And, and how do they, they get their voice um, uh, heard? 
when it comes to something like COP26. Can you talk maybe just briefly about the governance or, or the, just the ways in which you said you talked about the, you know, the rural poor and so forth? Do they have, uh, is this primarily to NGOs? Are there, uh, you know, uh, organizations or, or just generally, uh, I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then finally, maybe just what you you're, 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 you you speak with the cities, because I know there's been, uh, the yeah. mayor uh, has been tremendous momentum. I, I mean, you know, the, 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 the disadvantaged communities of the world are disadvantaged for structural reasons, right? So, so it's always a chat, you know, how do they get their voices heard? Well, multiple ways. The COP process itself is a consensus process. Actually, over 100 of those 196 countries self-identify as climate vulnerable countries. So their voice matters because you can't get anything agreed at the COP without them. Um, secondly, the, 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 the UN process recognises some formal observer groups, which include... Um, indigenous peoples, um, young, young people. Um, uh, uh, so, and the nine observer groups, so they all have a formal role in observing. And, and that means they don't get to vote on things, but they get to hold people to account and comment on discussions as, as they're going. And then finally, there's the whole sort of informal involvement of the non state actor community, you know, big civil society voices um, from all communities representing gender issues, youth issues, indigenous peoples issues. Um, from from all over the world, um, and uh, that's really the why we've created the race to resilience is to try and lift up those voices and the issues and the solutions um, in and in and around the COP. So we're, we're actually right now just looking at how we can make sure that throughout the two weeks of the COP, there's a, a constant drumbeat of um, awareness raising and. Um, and, and evidence of what needs to happen and is happening in some cases, but not but not fast enough around the whole issue of resilience. So, um, and, and those frontline communities that have, make sure that their voices in those conversations is crucial. Obviously, you can't just yeah. impose solutions from above. Very interesting. And and then just finally, I guess the, the, the question of cities. I mean, when we saw with uh, Trump uh, stepping back from, uh, you know, the, the American commitments of climate change and so forth and, and uh, you know, reducing uh, environmental regulation and so forth. At the same time, cities and, and uh, states as well uh, were taking up the, you know, the slack and and, and, and more than that, indeed, and, and around the world and the various, I know, uh, initiatives of cities working together. Can you give us a little bit of a feel for the lay of the land there? Well, it's, cities are crucial, right, because mayors... Um... I, mean, I, was, I, was, I was talking with Mayor Garcetti, who's one of, the, one of those amazing um, uh, mayors who's leading on climate change, one of the co-chairs of the C40 group of major global cities. And as he put it the other day, that um, national governments in many ways, you know, you, you could make the argument, and he does, that national governments don't do much. They set framework conditions, but the front line of implementation um, is much more the task of city mayors. So, um, of course, cities are often where most of the innovation takes place, and that's true at the policy level as well. So actually, since Paris, that leading group of mayors have been saying we need to get to net zero. So they've been ahead of, I'd say, the, the broader government and business community. Um, and of course, they are grappling with all the issues of how do you supply energy? How do you deal with waste? How do you supply housing for the urban poor? So uh, I think they, they have been hugely important and will continue to be hugely important. And that cities and, and states, as you say, look, for example, in Australia, all the states and territories are committed to net zero, but the national government isn't yet. And as you say, that was the case, um, or it was similar to under the Trump administration where we had this, we are still in movement of cities, states, businesses, universities, trying to keep hope alive 
in America under an administration that was in denial. So cities have been and will continue to be hugely important. And I think that that louder voice of global mayors you can expect to be heard, um, uh, very present and, 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 and I hope heard in Glasgow. Fantastic. I just, if I could slip in one question, you mentioned younger people and this is, you know, there's tremendous, there's been legal cases now, as well as you mentioned, not just in, 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 in uh, Germany, but, um, you know, young people uh, on various fronts and, and, and so many of the initiatives for, uh, for, uh, around the world. Are there, are there voices uh, in, in formal settings? Are there, are there voices being listened to more? I mean, we see this in the social media and in the media and so forth and, and, and an impact, but do you think that the younger generation is coming, coming into some kind of, a, a, a new role. Um, the, the 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 rising of the younger voice in the climate conversation has been hugely important. I think it's been catalytic in changing the politics and raising ambition. Um, of course, nobody but governments has a formal voice in a formal process, right? And businesses don't, investors don't, cities don't, young people don't. But the, but but the youth voice is one of those official observer groups um, within the with it you know around the UN process. But of course, there's a lot of unofficial. Um, uh, activation as well. I think one of the most exciting things is that as well as that kind of groundswell of sort of urgency and sometimes anger, you know, like you guys have known about it for a long time, you've got to fix it. We're also seeing, you know, more and more young people involved in very specific campaigns um, calling for very specific changes or, or as you said, specific legal cases. Um, certainly, you know, we have um, we have a youth fellowship program. Five, well, we have quite a lot of young people in our team, but we have five specific youth fellows, all early stage professionals working on specific things like alternative protein, alternative fuels, and working on resilience issues. So, um, you know, young people are not just a voice calling for change; they are driving change um, in, in 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 as well. Um, increasingly, I think that's a really exciting development. On a very optimistic note, uh, Nigel, I will uh, just want to say thank you very much for your time today and the great work you're doing. And I wish you all the best uh, over, over the coming months. Great, Fergus. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much. Take care. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesises Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.